Hello, and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by the Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following sermon is by Dr. Danny Campbell, senior pastor at the Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Sunday morning service. Additional information about the Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today. All right. Well, wasn't that wonderful? Martins and McDonald's, M and M's, right? Uh, that's, uh, that was really great. But that's not the M&M's I want to speak to you as I start the message today. It's these kind of M&M's. Looky here. Woo! Anybody else here like M&M's? My goodness, I sure do. Uh, like a lot of you, I love them. They're so good, I could never eat just one, right? In fact, I could never eat just one handful. In fact, more than likely, if given the opportunity, I would eat my entire weight in M&Ms and keep eating them until I went to my demise. But you know what I've never done? As often as I've enjoyed M&Ms, there's one thing I've never done. I've never stopped and asked, what does the M&M stand for? in M&Ms. As good as they are, they melt in your mouth, not in your hands. Does anybody out there know? Don't shout it out, but raise your hand if you know what M&Ms stand for. You do? Oh, well, good. Not many people did. Um, I'm not going to make you say it in case you get it wrong, but uh, yeah, I looked it up for this message, and the first M is for Mars, as in the Mars Candy Company, right? Maybe some of you guessed that. The second M is for Murray, the guy who helped Mars develop the iconic M&M. So here's the story. The Mars Candy Company had fallen on hard times, and Forrest Mars, son of founder Frank Mars, the father and son had had a bit of a split, and Forrest was trying to make his own name with things. So he had this idea for this wonderful candy, but he couldn't get his dad and him on the same page about it. This, actually, I think his dad had died by that point. And so he went to Murray, William Murray, who was running the Hershey's company at the time. Uh, and he asked him, will you back this candy that's a surefire success, that melts in your mouth, not in your hands? M&M came together, and the rest is history. But today I want to talk to you about M&Ms that are infinitely more important to Christians than the candy is and are. I want to talk to you about the call on each of our lives, having been saved by Jesus, having our reserved place in heaven, having the joy and peace that come from knowing him and the sense of purpose that he gives us to discover God's plan for ministry and missions uh, that he has on each of our lives. We are all called as Christians to be part of ministering and advancing his cause, the cause of missions in his name. Here's two questions for you as we look at starting. Here's the first one. What would you say are your ministries in the church? The ministries that you have either within the church or in the community, uh, things that God has on you to make a difference in his name in the lives of others. And the second question is this. What is your strategy to be involved in missions both locally and globally through the church, in the community, and all the way out to the nations? Uh, think about those questions today as we see Saul become a missionary. So as we've been going through, turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 13. 
This is another message in a series I'm calling Facing Life with the Apostle Paul. Facing Life with the Apostle Paul. Paul was a real person just like us. Uh, He had things that were going through his mind and that were on his heart. He had life experiences that were good, life experiences that were bad, all those things. And in his life, which Scripture gives us extended information on in the pages of the New Testament, we see uh, not only how he grew, but also how it encourages us as we grow and serve. So first we saw Saul get saved and get baptized. He had been hostile to the faith, then all of a sudden he was a believer and he got baptized and we then saw Saul begin to grow as a believer, thanks to people like Barnabas helping him grow. And then we also saw that uh, as a young believer, he was very concerned about a physical infirmity that he had, some kind of thorn in the flesh. And each of us has some kind of thorn in the flesh. It can be physical, it can be emotional, it can be spiritual, it can be something that we wish wasn't part of our life and is part of our life. And Paul prayed intensely that it would go away, and it didn't. And God basically came to him and said, enough, this is going to be part of your story. He didn't heal him. He said no to Saul for a greater yes. But he did give Saul, God gave Saul a promise that God's grace would be sufficient uh, as he went through life with this thorn in the flesh as part of his story. Well, then we also saw Saul get recruited. Barnabas came and got him, brought him to a higher level of service there in Antioch as they co-taught and led the church together. And last time, we saw how much Saul fought for integration in the church. He even had to rebuke some church leaders to uh, fight for it. Uh, He uh, rebuked Peter, the great apostle. He rebuked his friend Barnabas and said, listen, church is for everybody. It's for Jews and Gentiles. There's not a Jewish church and a Gentile church. There need to be Jews and Gentiles together worshiping the Lord, and people are to come together across all cultures and worship the Lord together. And that's the way it's been for 2,000 years. Anytime a church gets planted, it's for everybody. And when you make it about excluding people from another culture, you're in sin, you're the one that's wrong. Peter came to realize that, and so did the Apostle Barnabas later on as well. And Paul fought for that. must have been hard for him to speak that truth to them as the younger Christian in the whole mix, right? The one who had not been a Christian earlier. So Acts 13, our next passage here today, we're looking at verses 1 through 3, and then we're going to reflect on what's in chapter 13 and 14, Paul's first missions trip, missionary journey. It says in chapter 13, now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets, certain preachers and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord, what a fascinating phrase, as they ministered to the Lord. We think of ministering for the Lord. It says they were ministering to the Lord. You might want to underline that. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit said, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. Saul becomes a missionary. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the word of God. Thank you for what we've been seeing as you developed this man, Saul, how you saved his soul, how you equipped him and gave him passion, Lord, to share with others, Lord God, and how you met all of his needs along the way. Lord, he lived in turbulent times, and we are in turbulent days ourselves, God. We need your presence like he had it. We needed your, uh, Lord, the, the enabling that you give through the power of your Holy Spirit the way he had it, God. Lord, we pray that you will give us a greater sense of your presence, that you'll give us a greater sense of your purpose for our lives. 
You've given us this halftime experience these last few months, Lord, where everything that we were used to experiencing came uh, and slowed down, Lord God. And now as we slowly get back up on our feet again as a nation and as individuals and families and as cities and, Lord, in places, Lord, we pray that we'll continue to learn what you want us to learn and that you will work through us to accomplish what you want to happen in this, on this earth, Lord. We want your name to be hallowed. Hallowed be your name. We want your kingdom to come, your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, God. So even as we pray for our daily provisions to be met and we pray that we would be in good relationship with you and others, Lord, that our sins would be forgiven, that we'd forgive those who have sinned against us, Lord, even as we pray that we would overcome temptation each day through the power of the risen Lord inside, we pray that you'll use us to bring others to faith in you also. Bless us as we look at this passage. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, let's introduce this team of leaders that was there in the Antioch church. Verse 1 tells us that in the church at Antioch, this is Antioch that's in Syria, in Antioch of Syria, there were certain men, and their names of these leaders, these preachers and teachers, were Barnabas. He was originally from the Mediterranean island of Cyprus. We've been hearing about him in these last weeks. There was Saul of Tarsus from Cilicia, so if you go from Jerusalem up around that Mediterranean Sea there, uh, just as you round the bend and start heading this way uh, westward, uh, Cilicia is right there, and that's where Saul was from originally. Simeon was from Niger in Africa. Lucius of Cyrene was from North Africa. And I love this one, Manaean who had been brought up with Herod. Don't you love that little phrase in there? It says Manaean had been brought up with Herod. You remember that Herod, he had been an enemy of Christ, but his buddy Manaean had been saved. One friend got to work for the faith, even while another friend had worked against the faith. And that's true for some of you and your family members and your friends. You know, you grew up together, you knew each other, and now uh, one does not follow the Lord and the other does. And uh, it's just, even though you had those experiences together, uh, Manan was so hot after Christ now, he probably wasn't having much uh, uh, fellowship with Herod at the moment. You know, folks, all people are divided by what side of the cross they're on. But every sinner, thank God, is just a sinner's prayer away from going from the unsaved side of the cross to the saved side and turning into someone like Manan, who now followed Christ. He had come to the heaven-bound side of the cross. And I love that story of grace in there, that even though Manan had come from a group of people that probably had been against Christ, like Saul, he had found Christ. I would have loved to hear their testimonies shared as they talked about the different backgrounds they came from to follow Christ. But isn't it interesting that these leaders were all from somewhere other than Antioch? Every one of them that's mentioned here was from somewhere else. And I think about how in the church today, uh, there are some people in here who are from Danville and Ringgold and the surrounding counties. Others of you are still trying to figure out how you wound up in Danville. You're going, my goodness, you know, uh, Danville. Uh, and, and so, folks, it's really interesting how God moves people to different places. Life is a series of temporary assignments, isn't it? Even ones that last 30 years are temporary compared to eternity with the Lord. And the Lord brings people together like he did them for a time and a purpose, but he's going to move them on according to his plans. 
And so we have to make the most of our time together because we don't know when uh, next week or next year God's going to move a person here following work or a person there following work. And you just need to see the sense of humor God has it at all and how he's leading us. Uh, Goodyear moved you from Ohio to Danville. Uh, and yet God was behind it. He was bringing you here, and part of that plan and assignment was to bring you to be part of the tabernacle. Others of you are from even further away places, even other countries, and yet God brought you here, and we're together for such a time as this to grow together, to encourage one another as part of what God's doing in moving people around. And sometimes it's just people that are occasionally here for Sundays, like these wonderful missionaries down here, my sister and my brother-in-law and their son, Zach, who's a student at Liberty. But they've been missionaries in Papua New Guinea. That 20-year assignment or so has come to an end. Now they're doing the next thing, probably will be based south of Charlotte. And sometimes just for one day, they're here and encourage us, and we encourage them, and life is great like that. The team of leaders that were in the Antioch church. Now, in verse 2, we see that praise and prayer are ministry to the Lord. Don't miss what verse 2 states. It says, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted. So there's individual prayer. There's also corporate prayer when believers pray together, when believers praise together. And here, those things are called ministry to the Lord. Ministry to the Lord. Now, when I asked what your ministries are in the church, did anybody here immediately think, praise and prayer to God? Did you think in terms of that as, you know, you think of things you do for the Lord, but did you think of what you do to the Lord? And if I read these verses right, it means that every time we gather corporately and together we're praising the Lord and we say prayers together, and that happens also in Sunday school and other small groups and ministries we have, every time that happens, we are ministering to the Lord. We've seen some of that on these Tuesday nights. Got about 20 people playing basketball. We stop at the end, share testimony, do some prayer and stuff. And, and God's doing something there. And it's not just what we're doing for the Lord. It's ministry to the Lord. Ministry means serving, right? So you're serving the Lord. Do you view your prayer and praise time as an individual and with others as something you're a way that you're serving the Lord. I think that's clearly what's happening here. And when that happens, we see, uh, so, so whatever else you do to minister for the Lord, folks, you should not neglect the ministry of praise and prayer to the Lord. So have you ministered to the Lord lately? If not, prioritize the individual time, the together time, as something that God can use and speak to you in. Isn't it interesting that as they were praying and praising, and they said if they fasted too, and fasting is never to be talked about aside from prayer, because fasting is not an end in itself to kind of try to wrench God's hand behind his back, you know, and, and say, oh, if I fast, he's really got to do this. Fasting, for, in their days, it took a lot of time to procure, prepare, and eat food. So it might take an hour or two or more to get that all done. That was time they weren't going to do those things that gave them more time to pray. And as one meal turned into two, turned into three, maybe to a day or two or three, there's a rumbly in the tumbly that happens, right? And when I have a rumbly in the tumbly, what do I do? It reminds me to go get some food, right? But for them, when you're fasting, when we're fasting, the rumbly and the tumbly reminds us, oh, I'm praying right now, I'm not going to eat, and it just drives us right back to pray. We're so connected to the world of the sensory in our eating that times of fasting 
for us, whether you have it once a week or once a month or whatever, you know, uh, whenever it is, that time of fasting can focus us on the praying that we ought to be doing as individuals and sometimes together. They were praying together, and they heard from God the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit said, verse 2, it says, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Well, this brings up the question. Did they hear an audible voice when they heard from God the Holy Spirit? Did they hear an audible voice, Danny? And we're not told. Perhaps it was. Well, you say, well, Danny, has the Holy Spirit spoken to you in an audible voice? And some of you will understand what I mean when I say, no, it's louder than that. It's louder than that. Have you ever been praying by yourself or with others and all of a sudden, such a clear impression happens of how you ought to act and, or how you ought to act together to meet a need or do something that it's louder than a human voice. It's so clear to you what you are to do. Some of your heads are going up and down, same thing in the first service. You've experienced that. I'll give you an example for me. Back in 2004 or so uh, in Waynesboro, I'd been pastor four years. I'd been at the church eight years. And it was a time of intense spiritual warfare. And an evangelist came through and spoke to us. We'd done some missions things with us. He's with the Lord now. But at the time, he said, hey, Danny, he said, I understand it's gotten real hot in the kitchen here in Waynesboro. And he said, "Uh, I I know a church in Tennessee that would love to have you be their pastor. And on my recommendation, they'd probably call you. And he said, so won't you give me your resume while I'm here this week speaking, and uh, I'll bring that back there, and it'll get done. And I said, I need to pray about that. And I did. And I remember praying about that and saying, oh, God, it really is hard right now here. And there's a lot of things going on. But, but, but uh, Lord, um, do I have freedom from you to even pursue this? And loud as day, he said, nope, you are not done with what I've got for you here in Waynesboro yet. Not even close. And I said, well, that settles that. I told him even before he left that week, you know. And uh, that's how loud and how clear it was. Well, another 10, 12 years passed, and I had accomplished most of what I could sense that the Lord had brought me to Waynesboro to do. And I began that process in prayer and saying, Lord, is there another place that you have for me? If so, I'd like to be there before I'm 50, because if I'm going to spend 20 years somewhere, I need to get there, you know. Uh, And uh, I had the freedom then that I didn't have before. God said, yes, you have that freedom now. heard it clear as day, not in an audible voice, even clearer than that with the peace that comes along with that and the sense of purpose and moving forward. So I began to pray, and in due time, God connected us and the tabernacle down here. Let me encourage you to up your time in prayer as individuals, as families, as a Sunday school classes, as a church. Not just praying for what you think should happen, but looking for him to lead you. And in this case, in verse 2 here, we see the incredible power of prayer to advance God's kingdom. Because two things happened at once there. The Holy Spirit clearly called out Saul and Barnabas to be goers, to those to relocate from where they were for a time to achieve God's purposes through this missionary journey that they were going to go on. But he also called the church at Antioch to be senders, senders of that work and all that would happen with it. So everybody there heard from God and they were going to act accordingly on that information. Now, why did God pick Saul and Barnabas from among them to be missionaries? Well, there are both uh, reasons that are clear to us and then reasons we can discern as we read through the pages of the New Testament. We do know they had the commitment to sharing the gospel with everybody, right? They were already doing that. 
Uh, Saul had been doing it since he was a believer. Presumably Barnabas had too. They'd connected in Antioch, uh, and the church kept on winning people and growing. Uh, they had the gifting to do it. Man, when they spoke, you know, saints were encouraged, people were discipled, people were motivated, and things were happening there. And it was impressing even the church back at Jerusalem as that was all going on. But this series is about facing life with the Apostle Paul. And we're particularly looking at him and how God used him and how it might encourage us. And one thing that's very interesting to me is that uh, both uh, Paul and Barnabas, as they embarked on this first missionary journey, were also single men. They were also single for Jesus. They were single. Now, we don't read anywhere if whether or not Paul wanted to be married or not. There's actually some uh, theologians that, based on Paul's knowledge of things back in Jerusalem, they think he might have been part of the Sanhedrin, which means he had been married, and they say maybe he was a widower or even a divorced man somehow. We don't know any of that. We do know that, whatever reason, he was a single man. And we know in Philippians 4 that Paul said he'd learned a secret that everybody needs to learn, whether they're single or married. It says Paul had learned the secret of being content in whatever circumstance that he was in. And he said, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So whether or not Saul wanted to be married, he'd embraced his present singleness as giving him more time to serve Jesus Christ. So many times over the years, I've talked to married people who wished they were single and single people who wished they were married, and I haven't seen a lot of contentment from single or married people. You really have to uh, do that prayer work with the Lord to get his peace and say, okay, I may be married one day, but I want to use this time and this extra time I have to serve the Lord, whatever he brings into my life. And if I'm married, God's made that part of my story, and I have vows to fulfill within that. Paul never viewed his singleness as a disadvantage. In fact, he proudly proclaims it as an advantage he had to serve God. Turn to 1 Corinthians 9. And as you uh, turn to 1 Corinthians 9, you're going to keep your hand there a minute because we're going to look at uh, chapter 7 in a moment also and then come back to Acts chapter 13. 1 Corinthians 9. And Paul is talking to the Corinthians church because they had such a bad problem with comparison in Corinth. They compared everything about Paul and Apollos and Peter and all the other things. And uh, they noticed that Paul wouldn't take a salary. He uh, was bivocational. Others did take a salary. Uh, so he, they noticed he was single and that Peter was married and those different things. And Paul basically tells them what it is and isn't about. Look what he says in verse 3 here. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we have no right to eat and drink? Do we have no right to take along a believing wife, as do also the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord, and Cephas, or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? Whoever goes toward his own expense, who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit, or who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock? You know what Paul's saying there? Barnabas and I, we're the only guys that we know that are single and helping churches grow and not taking a salary from that church. We learn a couple of things from these, this passage there. 1 Corinthians 9, they were both single, Paul and Barnabas were both single, and they were both self-supporting. We know that Paul was a tent maker. He would go into a town, set up his tent, tent making industry, tent fixing business too, and he would fix and uh, make tents that he would sell, and that helped support him. He was what you'd call bivocational. 
and he knew that he was mostly serving churches that were starting out. They couldn't afford a pastor. Everywhere, everywhere though, he advocates for a church getting to a size where it can support a pastor, and after that, presumably a staff like we do here and all those different things. Um, Barnabas already had some means. We know that because back in Acts 4, it says he had sold a field and he had donated the proceeds. He brought them all, all to the church and said, hey, use this to meet the needs of the poor in our midst, the needs that our community has here within the church. And so he had uh, done that. Um, I love how Paul embraced his singleness and saw it as in the opportunities it gave him to serve Christ. Turn to 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7 is a marriage about, uh, 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 a chapter about practical questions related to marriage and divorce and widowhood and uh, singleness and other things. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8 and 9, Paul says, I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And now in verse 32, he says, but I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. My goodness. Now, this, of course, doesn't mean it's wrong for a single person to want to be married or that a married person should forsake their vows and claim God told them to do it. Uh, Paul is very much speaking here about understanding the situation you're in and making the most of it until your situation changes. And because life is a series of temporary assignments, spouses do die and a person becomes single that wasn't single previously. Uh, there is divorce, many times unwanted by one or both of the parties. And there's also such a thing as single and wanting someone to come along and it just not happening for you. We sing the great hymns of Isaac Watts. Isaac Watts never married. Uh, but he wanted to be. It just never happened for him. And so there's a lot of differences in the reasons people are single, and there's a lot of people that are married and content, others that are married and not content, all kinds of situations and those things. But what Paul says here is that while he's in this time, he can focus in on serving the Lord. He's got extra time to do it because he doesn't have to fulfill responsibilities to a wife and to children. Now, when you get married and then you start having children, for each one, you have new responsibilities in your life that you will be accountable to God to seeing through, right? So for each one of those things we take on, it also affects what we can do, when we can do it, etc., right? And so he's just being very practical about all, all those things. But his words are so relevant for today. Sometimes evangelical Christianity is so family-focused that singles feel left out. Boy, that spirit doesn't come from the pages of Scripture, doesn't it? That's not the Apostle Paul's attitude about things. When you add together American Christians who are single by choice, circumstances, divorce, or widowhood, you actually have over 50% of the church. And singles are not second-class Christians in the church. So, Paul and Barnabas had the focus to and the time to be able to go do this. Well, look at verse 3. It says in verse 3, Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they, the church, sent them away. Them, Paul and Barnabas, away. Missionaries are to go as extensions of a church's ministry and with their blessing and support. So, Barnabas and Saul went as a team, commissioned and prayed for by a team, and Antioch wound up sending its best to be missionary church planners. And every place they went did not have a church yet. Wow. Every place they went needed the gospel desperately. 
There may have been some Christians there already. There may have been some Jewish folks that were uh, proselytes from Gentile background. There may have been some God-fearers who were just waiting to be led to Christ uh, from a Gentile background also, but who had not become Jews. All those folks were out there. Here's what Paul later said in Romans 15. I have made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation, but as it is written, to whom he was not announced, they shall see, and those who have not heard shall understand. They had the heart, they had the time, they went out on mission with God. Now, folks, many times when a missionary goes out and follows God's call in their life, they get frustrating messages from their family members and friends. Uh, it's amazing the kind of things they hear as they go out and how even sometimes church members do not understand and say discouraging rather than encouraging words to them, unsupportive things to them rather than supportive things to them. Do you know what the number one thing that those that are going to go do something like that hear? Uh, Even from lost family members, which is a riot. You know what the number thing they hear is? What about all the lost people here? Aunt Jane, you don't even love Jesus. I am amazed at this newfound concern you have for lost people in our midst. And other family members, right? And of course, the best response to that is easy. I can give it as a pastor and missionaries going out do as well. And that is, yes, people here need Jesus too. And that's why there's this beautiful church here that's going to redouble their efforts to reach out within the church ministries, outside the church walls in the community and in the state and in the country and in the world, even as we go to some people that are terribly underserved with the gospel message. Amen? That's the message that goes out. And you know some of the best prayers for church ministries happen from missionaries that are overseas, reaching far less reached areas than we're in. They love to hear how you're trying to reach your local area so they can pray for them because it really is a two-way thing as all are encouraging each other. Now, folks, the rest of Acts chapter 13 and 14 show what happened as a result of the missionary team and the uh, church's obedience. Let's just take a little time, and you can read chapter 13 and 14 later, and I'm going to refer you to a couple of the verses that are in there, but we'll just go through rather quickly here. They first went to the island of Cyprus. Who was from the island of Cyprus that was on this team? Barnabas. That was his home island. So they went there, and it makes sense that they did, because Barnabas was from there. They also took Barnabas' cousin, John Mark, along. According to chapter 13, verse 9, Saul began using his Roman name, Paul. So from now on, it goes from Saul in the book of Acts to Paul. Saul was his Jewish name. He also had the the Roman name Paul as a Roman citizen. So he began using that because he was talking to more people that would be familiar with that name. In Cyprus, some did get saved, including a mayor of the town of Paphos. Sergius Paulus was his name, the proconsul. There was also a lot of spiritual warfare, so much so that when they went to the continent, when they sailed to the continent, which is Galatia, and what happens next is in Galatia, um, when they got there, John Mark said, this is not what I thought it would be. It's really freaky when people oppose us and I hear Paul speaking to them and them speaking to Paul. I'm out of here. And John Mark sailed back to Jerusalem where his mama was, Uh, not back to Antioch where they'd started from, back to Jerusalem, his hometown. And so it got hot in the kitchen and John Mark said, I'm out of here. And that comes in to things later on with Paul. Well, when they got to uh, Antioch, Pisidia, 
so another Antioch, this time in Pisidia, which is in uh, southern Galatia, they were allowed to speak in the synagogue there. Paul always tried to first go to a synagogue and speak to whatever Jews had a common background. He would open up the scriptures to them and talk about how Jesus is the promised Messiah and then call for faith in Jesus for eternal life. He would do that. And that very first place then uh, on the continent there, Antioch, Pisidia, that they did that, Many Jews, many proselytes, many God-fearers believed in Jesus that day, and Paul and Barnabas continued to urge them, urge them to continue in the grace of God. The next week, the whole town came together to listen, and the Jewish leaders were jealous and began opposing them, so trouble there too. It seems like everywhere Paul went, there was trouble. They were kicked out of the synagogue. They continued to reach out to Gentiles, but many more were saved in that region, not only the city, but also the region. So what they were saying is, now that you know Christ, uh, don't just leave it here in your Danville area, your Antioch Pisidia, but take it over to the, this burg and that burg and that ville and this ville and the other things, you know, Bumbleburg and whatever else. And they did that. The county seat church that Paul had reached out to reached the outer areas, and that was happening there. Well, the Jews stirred up prominent people to persecute and expel them, but first a church was planted. Well, next they went to the city of Iconium and spoke in the synagogue there. They immediately encountered opposition there. Now, if you experienced hard-hearted opposition, what would you do? You and I would probably say, okay, they're not ready for this. Let's go to the next place, right? There's lots of people that need Jesus. They would just go on. But look what Acts 14.3 says. Therefore, they stayed there a long time, <laughs> speaking boldly in the name of the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Folks, we can't all work miracles like the apostles did. Hey, if you can pray for somebody and they get healed, do it. Hallelujah, you know. If you can uh, uh, work a miracle, do that. But they, most of us can't. But we can stay when we feel like going. And that city also was divided, half siding with the synagogue leaders, half with the apostles. A violent attempt was made to stone them. And the disciples, uh, after conferring, said, you guys need to move on to the next place. And it was Lystra and Derbe, which were cities also in Galatia there. In Lystra, Paul healed a lifelong cripple. And Lystra was a city that talked a lot about Zeus and Zeus's squinty-eyed, hunched back over little friend named Hermes, the spokesman for the gods. And when they saw this healing take place, they thought, hey, Zeus and Hermes are down among us. They thought Barnabas was Zeus because of how good looking he was and of tall stature. They thought Paul was Hermes because he was hunched over and the spokesman for the gods and squinty-eyed and stuff like that. And they thought Zeus and Hermes have come here. And they had to restrain them from doing that. Well, how do you witness to people that don't really have the Old Testament scriptures and are engaged in this kind of idolatry? Paul didn't try to teach them what Isaiah 53 said in that moment. He went all the way back to the first doctrine of scriptures, creation. And he said, everybody here was created by one God. Gods are a sham. There's one God who created everything. And he used that common grace point of creation to try to bring them in. He, he had a different starting place with those who knew almost nothing about Old Testament scriptures, which is really interesting. Well, uh, about that time, Jews from Antioch and Iconium that hated Paul like Paul used to hate others came to Lystra and led the people to stone Paul. He was dragged outside the city, and you may remember he was left for dead there. And the new disciples there in Lystra came outside the city and they gathered around Paul. And it says that Paul got back up and you know what he did? He didn't go to the next place. He went back into the city. Oh my goodness. Hey, do you know what future missionary traveler with Paul was, was from Lystra and might have been there that day? 
Timothy and maybe his mom, Eunice, and his grandmom, Lois. Maybe they'd been around those that gathered around Paul and prayed. Maybe Timothy was inspired by Paul going back into the city, not away from the city. Maybe he said, man, that's worth giving your life for if you got that kind of peace, if you got that kind of purpose, that you'd go back to a place that's hostile towards you. Well, the next day they went to Darby. Great things happened there too. Made a lot of disciples. But you know, Darby is actually not far from Tarsus over land, which was Saul's home city. But instead of visiting his home city of Tarsus, they retraced their steps and went back to every city. And in Acts 14, we read what they did. Verse 21. Let me read verses 21 through 28 of Acts chapter 14 for you. When they had preached the gospel to that city, Darby, and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. Isn't that neat? Uh, They didn't say, hey, now that you're saved, it's going to be all hunky-dory and apple pie. They said, now that you're saved, expect some trouble. People aren't going to like it, you know. You're going to have troubles this way and that way. I love that they were that honest with them. So when they had appointed elders, plural, in every church, singular, multiple leaders in every church, just like Antioch, they prayed with fasting. They commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And after they had passed through Pisidia, southern Galatia, they came to Pamphylia, southern Galatia. Counties, state kind of difference there. Now, when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Adalia. From there, they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. Now, when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them and that he'd opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So they stayed there a long time with the disciples. So we end where we began in Antioch of Syria. Um, mission accomplished. Three churches planted, bathed in prayer, left with leaders, believers given realistic expectations of hardships they would face. They went back to the home church and they reported all that God had done. Now, so they planted several churches that were as far as three and four hundred miles away from where they had started. That would be like the tabernacle sending a team out as far as Chattanooga And that team planting a church in Chattanooga and then Knoxville and then Asheville and then Winston-Salem before coming home, which is pretty cool to think about it, except none of these places had any witness for Christ whatsoever yet. Wow. And it's so good when we get reports from our missionaries of them taking the gospel to places that the gospel had not been yet. Well, the last thing we'll look at is don't miss that Paul had a mission strategy as he went. Be sent by a church, a supporting church, go to a county seat type of city, set up the tent-making business in the marketplace to pay the bills, begin meeting needs physically and witnessing with the mouth spiritually, speak in the synagogue the following Sabbath if possible until they kick you out, (laughs) use the Hebrew scriptures and prove that Jesus was the Messiah from those scriptures. Preach to whoever else you can, finding common ground with them, like that we all have a God who created us. Um, Bathe every aspect in prayer. Engage in spiritual warfare as it comes. Get back up when you get knocked down. Get knocked down, get back up again, right? Get knocked down, get back up again. Some of those in the ministry and some of you in this room that have had a beautiful lay ministry over the years, you've gotten knocked down, you got back up again, and God continues to use you. 
And it goes all the way back to the earliest days. Begin discipling the new believers. Organize them into a church. Continue to evangelize non-believers. Disciple believers. Encourage those believers to reach their entire area for Christ. Endure hardship and persecution. Stay until a church was formed or until it was no longer feasible or prudent to stay. Make sure the church plants have good leadership. Report back to the sending church. You know what? That's what missionaries do today. They get it from the strategy of the Apostle Paul. They just do the same thing. So in another way, we have what we use as a blueprint to this very day. Folks, we began this message by talking about M&Ms, right? Ministry and missions. Let's you and I and the tabernacle be as committed to ministry and missions as Paul was. Let's pray. Let's give. Let's participate in what God is doing locally and globally. There's nothing cooler than being a part of Team Jesus. With the gifts and talents he's given you, there's something in the church you can own as a ministry or in the community, some way you have of being part of what God's doing here and around the world. Just a blessing wherever I go. All right. Um, And think about your strategy too, right? Um, It's so frustrating that... um, so many believers have such an individualistic faith. And, you know, it never works that way. When it's all about you and having your needs met, not only do you become a consumer Christian who wears out church staffs, um, but you're never fulfilled yourself because God made you to be on mission with him. He gave you new birth so you'd have your way of helping reach people through the church's ministries and things like God's pit crew in the area and beyond. And as part of that, to to really think about your own strategy and how it fits with the churches that you partner with. Many of you are very excited to be in a church that gives 25% to missions every year, and that's a wonderful thing. But there are deeper levels of involvement, and, and, and part of that is just thinking through, you know, the fact that there are 1 billion lost Chinese people on earth do you have a way of praying for people reaching that, those people with the gospel? There are one billion lost Indian people from India on earth. Do you have a way that you're part of reaching some Indians for Christ? There are one billion lost Muslims in the world. Do you have a way, and we, do we as a church have ways? We do for all these, which is praise the Lord, you know. Um, there are one billion largely lost Roman Catholics in the world that have a form of the Christian religion, but it's about the mass and the system rather than faith in Christ. It's a works-based system instead of a Christ-based system. And many of them are lost. You have a way of reaching out. And then the other things God puts on your heart, like being involved in uh, supporting pro-life causes, right? The pregnancy help centers like the ones we support in Danville and in Raleigh and Chapel Hill. Um, that you can be personally involved with as well. Um, many of us are concerned that when there's a time like this in America and around the world, there's always an increase in anti-Semitism, attacks against Jews, and there's always an attack on Christians around the world. Do you have ways of helping Jewish people around the world who have had so many hard knocks because of persecution throughout the ages? You know Satan's behind that. He's also behind all the persecution that happens in churches. How many of you know that this past couple weeks, a dear lady in India who's a Christian sister of ours was killed and her four children left without a mother because of persecution? You can know those things through Open Doors and Voice of the Martyrs and other websites that educate us about such things. We begin to educate ourselves about the needs related to human trafficking around the world. Hey, 
we're still talking about slavery in the past and how bad it was. There's more slavery right now around the world through human trafficking. What are you doing about it? What are we doing about it? Last year it was part of our Christmas offering because we're learning more, right? And so you need to strategize as individuals, as families, and together so that we can make the greatest input. Paul just didn't go hoping. He went with a plan, a purpose that he prayed over and thought about. And we need to do the same thing. It's a pleasure to serve you together as we try to advance Christ's cause of ministry and missions in the church and beyond. Let's pray. Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about The Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Tabernacle Today.